You're listening to Giro Vagando, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Yezi. Where are we, Lionel? Well, we're in Ostra, Daniel, and Daniele Fribrancini Tours has is done back. it again. Is back. This is spectacular, isn't it? We are in a place called Ostra, as you say, or just outside. We've had an, an absolutely mind-blowing journey from Yezi this evening. And we're in Le Marche, a region of Italy that is less well-known than Tuscany and Umbria. Some would say the landscape is similar. Lionel, can you remember, cast your mind back a couple of years ago to a little experiment we tried. Lionel learns Italian. Oh. And I, I think I got you to recite or to read out some passages from a very famous Italian travelogue guidebook. One of the first, I guess, um, sort of mass market Italian guidebooks written by a guy called Guido Piovene in the 50s, if I'm not mistaken. I was just looking at what he said about Le Marche and the views and scenery in Le Marche. I found this. The hills of the Marche turning to face inland are almost a giant garden representing the whole of Italy. They're not the Tuscan hills, the Umbrian hills or the hills of the Veneto. They're soft, serene, poignant, lustrous and devoid of sharp edges. Passing through these fertile lands, all of the growing plants and trees seem to glisten in unison as though the leaves have been polished and a light terracotta shade seeps through the sky, turning redder in the evening and glowing through the light and shade of the moon. Accurate. Beautiful. Very accurate, yes. I mean, it's like a, a, a sort of felt, beautifully textured collage in front of us, the hillside, isn't it? And the light on the little village up there is just beautiful. It's sort of pink, pastely pinks. Stunning. It was, as I said to you as we left the press room this evening, Lionel, in my mind, this was a classic Giro d'Italia day. Bright sunshine, beautiful lights. I talk a lot about the light, don't I, as, and how that affects the viewing experience. It reminded me of the stage we had last year, I think, to Stradella, won by Alberto Bettiol. It was intense racing. As I say, beautiful weather, a gorgeous, gorgeous part of Italy. And it's a part of Italy, as I've said many times, this, when we get towards the centre of Italy, that really feels like the most sort of condensed expression of some of the cliched images that people associate with Italy. You know, the gorgeous rolling hills, the mountains, the colour, the greens, the terracotta shades. The food is marvellous as well, as we've experienced in the last couple of days and we'll talk about later. Yeah, and the weather is spectacular as well. It's a little bit warm for my liking. I'm much more of a spring classics type person, um, but it's been almost Tour de France A little bit type. hot under that nice burgundy collar. Well, it, I mean, the creased burgundy jersey that I'm wearing, yes. Um, no, it's been a really warm, almost Tour de France-esque day in the car. Shall we crack on with the tale it's of the It's been a m- momentous day as a well in day. the history of the Giro d'Italia. Indeed, because Biniam Gamay, the Eritrean rider with the Antamarche Wanti Gobert team, became the first Eritrean, the first black African to win a Grand Tour stage. I mean, remember, it's only a few weeks ago that he won Gent Wevergham. 
one of the Belgian one-day classics. Now he's added a Grand Tour stage win here in Yesi. Well, we're not in Yesi now, are we? But uh, the stage went up the coast from Pescara to Yesi, 196 kilometres. And, well, it was a stage of two halves, really, wasn't it? Very flat first half and all the climbing in the second half. And the second half of the day was very much like a, an Italian one-day classic, wasn't it? Really good roads to race on, really aggressive racing as well. Before all of that, there was a three-rider breakaway. Alessandro De Marchi of, Friend of, the podcast. of Israel Premier Tech, Lawrence Narsen of AG2R, and Mattia Baez of Drone Hopper. I mean, Gianni's drones are not running out of battery, are no, they? No, they're not. And just on Alessandro Niamarchi, he came in and saw us in the mix zone before the start, and he promised, well, the Italian word he used was casino, which doesn't mean a casino that you go and gamble at, but it means, it's, it's, it's a slightly vulgar word that everyone uses to mean sort of chaos. And he also sort of hinted, winking, that he was going to be at the centre of this chaos, maybe the architect, maybe the catalyst for this chaos. Indeed. I mean, Bias has spent a third of this Giro, there or thereabouts, on the attack, over 500 and something kilometres of the 1500 kilometres race so far. Anyway, this trio got a maximum lead of six minutes or so. And as we got into the climbs, there was a little move by Chris Yule Jensen of Bike Exchange. David de la Cruz of Astana was uh, also aggressive off the front for a little while Richard Carapaz had a minor fall uh, but evidently was fine because he was very lively at the finish there was a bike change for Matthew van der Poel and Anto Marche hinted at what was to come because they were working very effectively Alpes in Phoenix too um, they were riding on the front but also marking the counter-attacking moves that were going there was another move by Jule Jensen and then DeMarkey left the other two behind with a bid for freedom. It didn't buy him much more time because he was caught with around 20 kilometres to go and it was all back together for a really, you know, it was like a firework display, wasn't it? The finish over those little climbs. There was an attack by Alessandro Covey of UAE Team Emirates, Lucas Hamilton of Bike Exchange, Vincenzo Nibali of Astana made a move and that, crucially, was marked by Lorenzo Rota of Antamarche, Gamay's teammate, of course. Then we saw Simon Yates of Bike Exchange. Simon Yates, someone, uh, a colleague of ours, Jeff Kenney, pointed out to me at the start this morning in Pescara that the stage started in Pescara in uh, Piazza della Rinascita, Piazza of the Rebirth, which very apt for Simon Yates, and it finished on Viale della Vittoria, um, Viale, the road of the victory in in Yezi, so that would have been perfect for Simon Yates, wouldn't well, it? Well, he, he, was, he was joined by Van der Poel, Giulio Ciccone of Trek Segafredo and Davide Formolo of UAE Team Emirates, and that was a really good-looking quartet, and they were still away with five kilometres to go until Van der Poel launched on his own. He was then reeled in. Hugh Carthy even had a go for EF Education, easy post, and then it all came back together for this sprint finish, and the incredible sight of Domenico Pozzovivo, the pocket rocket, the 39-year-old, doing a lead out I'd love to know if that's the first lead out sprint lead out he's done in his career but he did a fantastic job Gamay did go very early on Matthew van der Poel was coming like a sort of Roman chariot wasn't he I mean it was an extraordinary sprint between the we two talked, of them Gamay held on to win we talked a lot about Matthew van der Poel's skin in the mix zone this morning didn't we I remarked on his absolutely magnificent lustrous never mind the lustrous hills of the market uh, Matthew van der Poel's skin his his facial care routine is something that needs to be well it needs to be divulged disclosed shared I, and copied i speculated that maybe at the end of each stage the alpacin phoenix 
bunch just sort of put him back on a plinth and he just stands on that plinth in the back of the team bus until they get him off again for the next day's stage. I mean, he does look like a sort of... Um, a some kind of Yeah, like a gladiator, the statue of a gladiator. Like something we would have seen a few days ago in Pompeii. Indeed. But the day belonged to Gamay and Antamarche. What a stage win for him. Van der Poel second, Vincenzo Albanese of Eolo with third, Kelderman fourth, Carapaz fifth. All the GC riders were in that group, although Leonard Kemner and Richie Port, who were in the sort of lower reaches of the top 20, lost time in a few places today. Gamay has cut DeMar's lead in the points competition to just three points. But then drama on the podium afterwards. Gamay just about to celebrate his victory with the bottle of um, Astoria Prosecco. Is it a Prosecco? It's similar, yes. isn't it? It is a Prosecco. I believe so. It's not a, it's not a Spumante d'Asti, is it? In the past, they've had a, a Spumante d'Asti. I think it is Either Prosecco. Way, no, it is Prosecco. Either way, a sparkling wine and the cork burst out and hit him under the left eye and he's gone to hospital for treatment and um, the team are saying that they will assess things in the morning we really hope i mean goodness me what a way uh, to end the day having won a duro stage let's just hope uh, he is good to start tomorrow morning um, because that would be a, a terrible way to, for the duo to end for him especially when he's poised now to uh, challenge Demar for the Ciclomino jersey. Tomorrow, it's the billiard table stage to Reggio Emilia and also the food stage. And before we move on, I should just also say that Yesi, where we finished tonight, um, that's the birthplace of Michele Scarponi, no? No, very, it's close. Was he born there? Certainly lived most of his life um, just inland and the race went through Filotrano, did it not, where um, he spent most of his life. I also learned today that Yezi is incredibly famous for fencing. He has contributed more fencing medals in Olympic Games than any other, well, one of our Italian colleagues told me, any other city. But have other cities, I mean, is this a thing? Do cities produce sort of well fencing gold medalists in flurries i don't know i mean is do they are they have they produced two and everyone else has produced one i don't know he said they'd produce 30 odd wow extraordinary on guard still gassing on fueling not sure what or when to eat and drink on rights that matter never again optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data actionable insights and personalized analytics we're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens for supporting the Cycling Podcast. I've been wearing the Super Sapiens sensor on my arm and analysing the data on my app. I've been checking out what kind of impact on my blood glucose levels the fatty furbo has. Uh, but I've been getting some expert advice and answers from Christina Scroce from the University of Verona who also consults for Super Sapiens and I wanted to know first of all what factors can affect blood glucose levels? There are many factors that can actually affect glucose levels and also how do these factors affect glucose levels is an individual feature. It's really different for, for me, for you, for anybody else. Different types of food can affect glucose levels, different kinds of activity and also different intensity within the activity itself. Some people are less or more prone to stress 
And these can also have a certain effect and also sleeping quality. So let's say that these are kind of main factors that we notice that have an impact on glucose levels and are quite individual. So that's actually the good thing about uh, using the CGM device is that it permits you to see which is the impact of all these factors on your body. If you want to find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. Daniel, as impressive as Biniam Gamay's sprint was, and undoubtedly it was, I mean, he went from a long way out. He was strong enough and fast enough to hold off Matthew van der Poel, who is one of the very best riders in the world and an extremely fast finisher. Um, but the team really set up that victory brilliantly. They got four riders in that group of 35 or so as it split up on the final climbs. And they played an absolute blinder with riders that you perhaps wouldn't have expected in some of the key roles. I mean, Lorenzo Rota, yes, closing down moves. Pozzavivo was lively, doing a bit of marking as well. But then when it came down to the finish, they just used what they had to give Gamay the best possible chance of uh, taking the win in the sprint. Yeah, this is a team which since last year, and I remember speaking to various members of the team at the Vuelta last year where they were very successful and Ryan Taramai um, had the, the leader's jersey. It, it's a team that has created an identity, I think particularly in the team, um, as underdogs, as a sort of motley crew, odds and sods, a group of sort of bin ends that have been discarded or overlooked by other teams in the world tour and Domenico Pozzavivo really epitomizes that doesn't he I mean um, well beyond the new year he was without a team He's... I mean they, they signed him after 20 kilometers of the stage practically <laughs> yes. didn't they yes and you know we've talked about his riding style the other day um, the the wonky shopping trolley and the <laughs> the, the kilo of cooking apples being cradled in his arms while he dreams of making apple and making a lovely apple crumble for the rest of the team that evening. Um, but yeah, they they have they have managed to foster this spirit and they've turned it into a very powerful fuel. I feel it's it's also a very diverse mix of nationalities. They've got a Hungarian here, they've got an Estonian, they've got an Eritrean, an Italian, and this is a Belgian team. And they're also their staff is quite heterogeneous in terms of where they've come from and, and nationalities and so forth. And we've seen this before in professional cycling. Um, it, it, you know, it, it can come from a sense of, of common nationality or common background. We've seen sort of de facto national teams before that have come together very well and worked really well together. But we've also seen this diversity work very well. And I suppose there's a kind of... Well, it's almost poetic that Binyam Gamay ended up in this team. And, you know, it was perhaps not the most obvious one for him to join. I mean, I spoke to his agent, Alex Carrera, the day after he won Ghent Vavagam. And Alex told me just how many teams were interested in taking him from Delco Marseille last year. There were about seven teams. I mean, Alex reeled them off for, for me. Quickstep wanted him in 2021. Um, Antal Marche, um, EF, Easy Post, Cofidis, AG2R, Arkea. UAE and the really, the main reason or one of the main reasons he didn't go to one of those French teams and there were a few French teams in the queue was that Delco Marseille are a French team and he still had a contract for 2022 and 2023 and they, their preference was that he went somewhere else he didn't go to UAE because he was unsure that he would get 
enough opportunities there. Quickstep was the same and Antal Marche was just in this perfect sort of niche in the middle of the Venn diagram of opportunities and availability and willingness to take him. And it's worked out beautifully for for him and for them so much so that they've extended his contract and he now is going to be the talisman of that team and and their new identity going forward their identity for the next few years is not going to be one of of these cast-offs or these riders that no one wanted these mongrels it's going to be built around him he's going to be the the totem of that team yeah i think they epitomize the team that has come together to be better than the sum of its parts and you know sprinters can't really win solely on their own. I mean, you know, he could well have got himself into that group on his own and uh, won the sprint, but he would have had to have ridden in a slightly different way. He might have had to feel that he had to mark um, Van der Poel when Van der Poel moved. Uh, Having teammates around him to just do some of the work, some of the chasing, some of the marking um, would have given him the confidence just to sit tight and wait for the sprint and do the thing that he uh, can do so well, as we saw again Wevergem. I remember I said after the first stage on the uphill finish that Van der Poel won uh, way back in Hungary, uh, I speculated whether Gamay might benefit from an easier finish. But, I mean, he's climbing so well. That's the thing. I mean, he's basically a classics rider who can win Grand Tour stages like this. And uh, he's already sort of fitting the profile um, of a rider in the Vanderpool mould. He looks terrific as well, doesn't he? He looks he looks flexible, he looks explosive. And we've talked before about his his positioning on the bike, his bike handling, although he had a he almost dropped a clanger today, didn't he? He went off the road on the on the final descent. And this this rivalry that's developing with Matthew Van der Poel, actually you know, physically quite different looking riders, but quite similar in terms of their characteristics um you're both very fast both good climbers and they seem to almost be searching for each other in the in the bunch there's sort of the daniel larusso and johnny lawrence of professional cycling at the moment well it's funny because there was a moment on the run-in where they almost looked each other out you know they they tried their various different things um antamarche had had got um, uh, Gamay into the right position. Van der Poel had tried his moves unsuccessfully and then they just came together almost like magnets and then they launched the sprints from that position. And there was a lovely moment, I don't know whether you saw it, Lionel, because you were out gathering quotes, but when Mathieu van der Poel realised that he wasn't going to beat Gamay 20 metres or so from the line, he took his right hand off the bar and he stuck his thumb up to Gamay in a gesture of... A gesture of fair play and a gesture of admiration. Yeah, beaten by the faster man today. Um, absolutely. Um, yes, I was out at the finish line, Daniel, and I was doing a sort of supermarket sweep of my own. Antamarche, of course, is a supermarket chain, and I was uh, rushing around and I managed to speak to Jan Hurt and Lorenzo Rota and then Valerio Piva, the boss of Antamarche, the sports director here, and this is what they said about the sprint finish. The team worked so hard for that today. Yeah, that was the plan. We know that Vinny is, Vinny is one of the best sprinter here, and he can also great. He's also great in the climb. So I think he was with Van der Poel biggest favorite today. So we yeah, we tried to control the race. And how did you go about making sure that Van der Poel didn't get away because he was off the front for a little while? You you didn't seem to panic. And of course we. Uh, you never know, he could win also. It's not like we, we were sure that we will win, no? but we just tried to do our best. A lot of pressure on him today because of so much work that you did 
from where I was standing, it looked like he'd gone very early. What did you know about the sprint? Yeah, uh, the problem was uh, control the race, but after after uh, the first breakaway, we, we started to control the race uh, with Alpesin. So we did uh, a very great job. We make a good pace. And uh, until the end, uh, every everybody do an amazing job. We, we try to put uh, Bini in, uh, in the best uh, situation and uh, we know then uh, if uh, Bini arrives in the sprint, uh, he's uh, one of the best uh, sprinters in the world, so we are very happy. What does this mean for the team? Yeah, for the team, it means a lot. Uh, you know, from the start of the year, we are, we are, we are riding fantastic. We, we win Gendweber again with team, we win a lot of other races. The riders, they are super motivated and... We know that we need to, to fight till the end to, to keep this, uh, this position for the World Tour and uh, it's also important for us, very important and that is, uh, I think we start good the season and we, we continue so and it's very important for us, for sure. And what's Binium like as a, as a person on the bus and as a rider to manage? I, I, li I like to have 10 like him, he's very... Very friendly, very happy. Every morning he stay, he come down with a smile, and he, he make he make a really group around him. Everybody, they are friends. So, and that I think is the secret of this success. Yeah. And now the Ciclamino jersey could become an objective. Yeah, we think from the start that is why we start to sprint also on the intermediate. So now we have this jersey. We will see. It's, it's three the next three days. I think tomorrow for sure. Again a sprint, but that is really the sprinter. And then we see Genoa, we see Cuneo, we see day by day. I'm happy. Well, Lionel, it's an incredibly, well, I said it was a momentous day for cycling, for the Giro, the first black African to win a stage in a Grand Tour. I said to you before we started recording, I think it's even more significant given the history of Eritrea. We talked about it in the first episode of this year. Uh, it was the first episode, wasn't it? When we finished at Visegrad and Gamay almost won that day, given that well, there was a process of colonization of Eritrea that began late in the 19th century. Italy colonized Eritrea, so much so that it was known as Italian Eritrea for decades. And that process ended well, Eritrea finally gained independence again in the 1940s. And I talked to you as well about this process of reckoning that's only taken place, or the process of soul-searching in Italy, really, that's only taken place in the last few decades. Uh, I mentioned the famous journalist Indro Montanelli, who had an Eritrean wife, but the circumstances in which he had... Um, he he'd started a relationship with this lady were dubious to say the least um and pretty distasteful and and you know f statues of montanelli or a particular statue in, in milan has been defaced and and we've well we've all seen i think we've all we've all followed the stories in the last few years of um of african immigration to italy and the, the resistance that that's been met with that we finished today in a in a region as we said at the start of the program, an absolutely gorgeous region, uh, Le Marche, but the regional um, governor here, the, the president of the region, actually belongs to the party, and Fratelli d'Italia, whose policies on immigration are pretty, pretty unwelcoming, I would say. And, you know, it's seen in that light... Gamay's victory is hugely symbolic, hugely important, and and by the vast majority of people, 
was was greeted joyfully today. I mean, I was sitting in the press room and there was a spontaneous, this happens very, very rarely nowadays. Um, I was surrounded by Italian journalists who stood up um, and, and started applauding spontaneously as he crossed the line. There were cheers in the press room. I mentioned the gesture by by Mathieu van der Poel. Uh, Juan P. Lopez, the pink jersey, was also clearly, visibly delighted that Gamay had won today. Part of that is due to his personality, I think. Um, he comes across as a very affable, a very likeable guy, well-liked by a lot of people in the peloton. But uh, the, the symbolism, the importance of it, is not lost on a large proportion of the riders themselves. And this is a significant step in a journey that has been underway for a number of years. I mean... Um, earlier in the spring, I met up with Doug Ryder, who, of course, was the boss of the Quebeca team, which became Dimension Data and then became NTT and then became Quebeca again and has disappeared from the World Tour this year after struggling to find funding, uh, but still has a development team um, at the lower level and it have plans to come back to the World Tour in future years. And I know that... Uh, Gamay has been quoted as saying that he was inspired by Mahari Kudus and Daniel Teclahymanot, who've ridden the Tour de France. I mean, Teclahymanot, of course, took the King of the Mountains jersey, the polka dot jersey in the Tour de France in 2015. And there's always been this sense. I mean, it's a cliche, isn't it, about anything. If you can see it, you can be it. I mean, if a, a young black African looks at professional cycling and sees nobody that looks like them in the peloton then that's a significant barrier and that barrier is being chipped away at gradually bit by bit and performances like this will uh, do so much to kind of accelerate that process and also Lionel I've said it before but we we see the rise of Gamay through the prism and rightly so we we talk about its significance in terms of African riders and, and black riders and, and diversity and so on and so forth. But even if you divorce it from that context, a rider of 20, who's just turned 22 to be doing the things that he is doing, and that really reflects or, or suggests that we have another, yet another superstar who is emerging and someone who we're going to love we're going to enjoy watching for many many years to come well i think already you can say how on on the basis of the gent wevergem win if you can win gent wevergem i think you can have a stab at the tour of flanders um he rode well at milan san remo as well and he's got the fast finish for that race he can climb well enough to get over the Gipressa and poggio and still unleash that sprint as you say he's only 22 he's got time um but he's in that mold of rider who can win these sorts of stages and that's actually quite a small group of riders it's he's got the attributes um of someone who can pick up a lot of these kind of wins because he's more versatile than just a bunch sprint finisher and how easily or how far ahead of the rest of that group were van der Poel and gamay today uh, you know they were they were predominantly climbers who could sprint a little bit mm. and gamay and van der Poel were really i mean we we talk about Mathieu van der Poel as almost an extraterrestrial as someone who has just phenomenal abilities but Gamay is is very much well, he's the same. Well, it's the rocket powered acceleration of Van der Poel that we've seen so often, and yet Gamay unleashed his rocket powered acceleration earlier and had the strength to hold on. Um, I mean, it was close, but he he managed to do it. Of course, 
all of the voices we heard from the Antimarche team earlier were speaking before the unfortunate incident on the podium and the the um, Prosecco bottle cork hitting him in the face. Uh, as we said earlier, he went to hospital, he's been checked out, he's back at the hotel now. Um, we can only hope that he is OK tomorrow. I mean, he might have a bit of a shiner, perhaps, um, but hopefully he can get on the bike um, and ride tomorrow. I mean, <laughs> extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, cycling, flipping X sometimes. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's said PK to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by the Hammerhead Carew 2 cycling computer, which I've been using since, well, many months now, actually, and it's become my favourite bit of cycling kit. Um, you can import all the routes from Strava or Kamut and various other apps, and it gives you fantastic turn-by-turn directions. Recently rode around Scotland, of course, with Simon Gill, plotted all the routes on the Hammerhead dashboard, and we didn't go wrong all week. I mean, the only errors we made were human error. The um, Hammerhead was beyond reproach. And as I've said before, the climber feature is a thing that really appeals to me because... It tells you how far there is to go to the top of the climb. And I find that incredibly motivating to know there's only a couple of hundred metres to go, push on, and then it's going to level out. So for a limited time, listeners can get a free custom colour kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with every purchase of the Hammerhead Carew 2. Visit hammerhead.io now and use the promo code CYCLE at the checkout to get yours today. So that's the custom colour kit, which means you can match your Hammerhead Carew 2 to your bike or your kit colour as you choose, and you'll get the water bottle as well. You add all of those three items to your cart and then use the promo code CYCLE. It's a limited time offer, and it's only for Cycling Podcast listeners, so don't forget to use the promo code. We'll put that in the show notes. Questa è la versione moderna e questa è un'antica. Ma iniziamo intanto con una presentazione. Lei si chiama? Paolo D'Addazio. Paolo D'Addazio. Sì. Mi ha spiegato prima che eh, fa parte di un consiglio. Faccio del... parte della Federazione Italiana Cuochi, la FIC. So Paolo è da in the Italian Federation of Cooks. Però in questa è una federazione italiana cuochi. Sì. Invece qui l'associazione abruzzese e la provincia di Pescara. So, Lionel, as you can see, he's got a lovely embroidered badge on his chef's overalls, which shows uh, questo come si chiama? Luca Ratur. Luca Ratur. Luca Ratur. Which is the... Allora, la chitarra che c'entra? Chitarra è... Perché fa la chitarra? Come la chitarra? Well, just to explain what it is, it's a wooden frame with strings tensed across it. And how, but how does it make the pasta? I mean, okay, so you put the pasta, the sheet of the pasta on top, with like a, a rolling pin, it falls down. But the difference between these spaghetti and spaghetti normal is qual è? Sono quadrati. So they're squared. I read a few conflicting things. Were you here for? Somewhere, some place it says six months, some place it says two years. What was it? No, no, I was here for six months. I was riding with a, uh, an amateur Italian team for six months. Arancucino, is that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So. And how well, how many times did you ridden Blockhouse when you were there with them or Paso Lanciano? Uh, yeah, I used to do Paso Lanciano pretty often, but uh, 
block. I mean, it was it was a pretty big ride out from where I was living to the bottom of Paso Lanchano, so just to do Paso Lanchano was a pretty solid day. And you know, if I did if I did like the extra what 10k up to Blockhouse, it was also pretty epic. You know, so I only did it a couple of times, but uh, yeah, it's a pretty I don't know iconic climb and uh yeah super cool to win there actually and last thing of course when the italians have written about your connection with abruzzo they've always talked about your love of arrosticini <laughs> and uh, spaghetti alla chitarra is this truth or myth uh yeah 100 percent truth mate can't get enough of uh rosticini it's a it's a it's a delicacy it's a really uh, a hidden gem of Italy. I don't think it gets enough credit internationally, actually. So. And the spaghetti alla chitarra? Yeah, beautiful, mate. Can't get enough. Well, Lionel, that was Jai Rule. Jai Hindley, winner on Blockhouse, adopted Abruzzese, spent, well, as we heard there, he spent very happy months in Abruzzo, became an... Uh, uh, a lover of the cuisine from Abruzzo, Arosticini and Spaghetti alla Chitarra. And prior to that line, we heard from Paolo D'Adazio, who was well, our chef for the evening on, it was a couple of nights ago, wasn't it, when we arrived in Abruzzo before the rest day. And well, he introduced us, well, we've had it before, but he really... He really explained why spaghetti alla chitarra is such a, a prized dish, such a, a beloved dish in Abruzzo, and he made us uh, a very delightful plate of spaghetti alla chitarra with what we didn't hear there was that what he explained was that the, the most typical sauce is from Termoli, which is in um, Abruzzo. It was uh, not quite where we were staying, but not too far away. And the Termoli version of spaghetti alla chitarra, where it's a tomato sauce with these very tiny kind of marble-sized meatballs. Yeah, I mean, a lot is spoken about the different types of pasta. And, of course, the, the main thing that people who aren't from Italy assume is that the pasta is matched to the sauce. and Which is the case. Which is the case. Mm-hmm. But I also think having eaten the spaghetti alla chitarra, Chitara, sorry. Having eaten the spaghetti alla chitara, I mean, there's no real reason for it not to be just round spaghetti. And yet the actual sensation of eating it is slightly different. It feels different to bite. It holds the sauce differently. And um, it's a it's a different experience. I mean, it might only be a subtle difference, but it is a difference nevertheless. And I, I really like the fact that the cuisine changes, you know, as you go through the various stages of, uh, of the duo. Do you know what I propose? What we didn't hear there was Paolo mm, talking about that. Well, we heard that he's a member of this association, a sort of association to kind of protect, safeguard the heritage, the, the tradition of spaghetti alla chitarra. Um, I propose that if Jai Hindley does not take the pink jersey at some point in this Giro. He should be granted honorary presidency of the association which Paolo told us about Lionel. I think it was Sunday night, wasn't it? Um, that he's a member of. And that the, pre- the president 
gets to wear a blue sash. I don't know if he has oh, to I wear it, it at all times, only when he's making the spaghetti alla chitarra. Paolo, he said slightly sheepishly, didn't he? Oh, unfortunately, I've never been the president. Um, it sounds like a lifetime ambition. I don't know if Jai Hindley knows about this. Maybe we'll tell him about, maybe we'll continue the conversation about spaghetti alla chitarra, although we're no longer in Abruzzo. Maybe I'll um, I'll summon him to the mix zone tomorrow and I'll ask him whether the, 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 the mythical blue sash is well, figures on his list of objectives, goals, dreams, aspirations. And when he turns up to his next race wearing a Bora Hansgrohe jersey with a blue sash and an enormous embroidered Kitara badge on the chest, we'll know the answer, won't we? Lionel, general classification riders, pretenders, contenders, including Jai Hindley, how did they fare today? Well, they all more or less came in together. As I said, Leonard Kemner and Richie Port. I mean, Richie Port's here on team duties, isn't he, for Richard Carapaz and Ineos. Um, they both lost a bit of time in a few places, so slipped down from sort of around 14th, 15th to around 18th, 19th on GC. Um, Pavel Sivakov, who I spoke to briefly at the finish, he had a tumble. Um, and just said it was a, a, you know one of those silly falls, but was fine. He was going to go and get checked out of the bus. Richard Carapaz came down as well at some point, but he was looking very sprightly over the climb, wasn't he? And on the descent, in fact, on the run into the finish. And I suppose it was one of those days that just sort of saps the legs a bit. Um, sometimes do wonder what the intention is in a stage like today, when the gains would be, you know, two, three, four seconds. I mean, there wouldn't have been significant time gains, even if anything had split up. And especially with uh, a couple of, well, tomorrow's stage will certainly not be anything for the GC riders to worry about. Um, but the fact that they were all there in the same group, all alert, all attentive, um, all, uh, you know, sussing each other out, I guess. It's going to be an interesting week this week, isn't it? It's a very, it's a transitional week. I spoke to Lucky Lorenzo, Lorenzo Fortunato this morning, who didn't have a great first week. And I asked him what he expected of... Uh, a couple of similar stages to today's this week and he said well he hopes it's very controlled so that you know they can all sort of come into the the final week as we stand at the moment and everyone will give what they've got in the final week i i sense today there was a little bit of sort of of, of, of trying to take advantage capitalize on one of the few opportunities there are going to be this week mindful that there will not there may not be many um, before next weekend one of the things we wondered on the rest day was whether Simon Yates would go much further in this duo after losing all that time at Blockhouse at the finish I spoke to Matt White the sports director at Bike Exchange uh, Matt we were speculating on the rest day whether Simon Yates would continue in this duo but I think we got our answer today yep you, you certainly did uh, look it's it was this Sunday was disappointing for sure. Uh, there's no hiding behind the disappointment, the amount of effort that the team and sacrifices that the athletes, especially the athletes, made to get in the condition that they're in. And uh, you, you just got to turn that turn that around quickly. Uh, they had a nice day to clear their heads, relax, and uh, today we came out racing. And it won't be the last time you'll see it for the rest of this Giro. Was it the knee on Sunday? He banged it on the kerb in the crash on the stage to Etna. Is that what troubled him when the climbing got hard on Blockhouse? Yeah, it's an issue that hasn't been resolved. Uh, and you know, when you've got any issue there, that's, you know, we're talking about riding at 100% here, and when you've got an issue that is not resolved, especially on big days, big loads, 
it's not optimal. It's not optimal for any athlete. And uh, unfortunately, GC battles over, but another one starts now for us, and that's the hunt for stage wins. How much can you actually recover on a stage like tomorrow, for example? I mean, it panned flat, but it's quite a lot of kilometres. But can the knee recover a bit, even though it's working? Well, yesterday he didn't touch the bike, uh, so that worked all right. And uh, and then today will be because you know, we won't feature at all in tomorrow's race. I haven't looked at what the wind's doing tomorrow, but it will be with people around our guys. It will be quite easy to hide on the wheels tomorrow. So again, I've looked at the long-term weather forecast is really warm. So that's going to be an issue for everyone just to, because it's been quite a mild spring and all of a sudden summer's arrived. Uh, it looks like it's here to stay for at least a week. Well, clearly Bike Exchange are here to race, are here to target stages. Now, they've also got Lucas Hamilton, who's not in the GC picture either, but uh, is certainly capable of winning the sorts of stages that maybe Simon Yates would also be um, targeting. So they've got options. I just wondered whether or not the, the prudent option would be to you know, give Simon Yates a couple of weeks to recover fully and then go again for the Tour de France. Yeah, it's sort of surprised me that he's staying for for that reason, Lionel. You know, they they don't really have another general classification option for the Tour de France. Whether he would be able to gather himself and and prepare for the Tour de France if he were to pull out now, prepare himself to to ride GC at the Tour de France, I'm not entirely sure. I think what he will end up doing is ride the Tour de France in the same vein, in the same way, with the same goals that he would have anyway, even if he'd ridden a successful Giro d'Italia, namely trying to win stages, which we've seen him do before. He's been very successful at that. But that was certainly, it, it certainly would have been an option for them to try um, to sort of cut their losses here and and go to the tour but they've decided not to do that and based on today you would have to say that Yates appears to well he appears he appears to be getting better and if he's getting better then he can definitely be a factor and he could definitely win one or two stages between now and Verona and I think there was also a clue there in what Matt White said about the weather it's very warm here all of a sudden and after the mildish spring you know we know the Tour de France is always baking hot isn't it um it might be a sort of long-range bit of acclimatization do some hot weather racing while there's the opportunity yeah we should also say that this was a an issue that they thought well they they certainly didn't anticipate causing Simon Yates a problem. I mean, we spoke to Matt White in our preview episode, didn't we, before the Giro, and he talked about the climate, though. He talked about the weather then. He talked about uh, Yates being comfortable in the cold weather, being able to cope with it, and also being ready to tackle the heat should it arrive. And as it turns out, it has been a warm Giro. It's going to continue to be a warm Giro, I think. So that was not an issue. That was not a problem that they anticipated, uh, I don't think. Just lastly, I mean, we're going into this lull for the GC riders. I mean, uh, Juan P. Lopez, who's obviously still in the pink jersey, he's going to hold that jersey, isn't he, for a few more days yet, you would think, probably until the weekend, Sunday maybe. Saturday, Turin, lumpy up and downy, but he coped... Um, you know, well enough with Blockhouse to suggest that that won't cause him any difficulties. Starting to look a bit Almeida-y. He is looking a bit Almeida-y. We were talking, weren't we, about this uh, phenomenon when the first big mountain stage has happened in a Grand Tour and there's always that sense of disappointment for riders that haven't lived up to previous results. And I went through and looked at the 
um, the sort of top 15, top 20 on GC. And it's just a reminder of just how many of them have experience of finishing in the top five of a Grand Tour. I mean, just to run through it, Lopez in the pink jersey, his best result, and let's remember he's still a relatively young rider, was 13th at the Vuelta last year. I mean, Almeida's been fourth and sixth in the Giro. Bardet's been on the podium at the Tour a couple of times. Carapaz have won the Giro. Hindley second in the Giro. Guillaume Martin, you know, one of the kind of slightly also ran types. Eighth at the Tour, ninth at the Vuelta. Lander's been on the podium at the Giro and fourth at the Tour. Pozzovivo, fifth at the Giro. Buchmann, fourth at the Tour. Bilbao, fifth at the Giro. Valverde, of course, has won the Vuelta, been third at the Tour and the Giro. I mean, that's not even counting Nibali, who's one or three. Um, really, in that top 20, you're talking Lopez, Aronsman and Kemner are the only ones that don't have kind of top five, ten positions to their name. Jan Hurt even has been 12th in the Giro. And that, I suppose, gives you the idea of the, the strength in depth. In terms of real star quality, perhaps it's missing Roglic and Pogacar. But... Um, there is a lot of depth in the field and I think that's what gives us the hope that the final week will be a stellar week for the GC race. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science and Sport. Science and Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science and Sport. You can get 25% off everything on the Science and Sport website with the code SISCP25. Very good friend of the podcast, Marcus Banks, wrote to me to say that there is another key advantage of science in sports beta fuel. I mentioned how useful the drink is for refueling because of the carbohydrate in it. But he urges me to point out the benefits of beta fuel to our dear listeners. A standard science in sport gel weighs 70 grams and contains 20 grams of carbohydrate. The beta fuel gel weighs 77 grams but contains 40 grams of carbohydrate. Whilst this is only a marginal gain, it does mean you can go out on a ride with half the number of gels. This leaves more room in your pockets, which is particularly useful if you happen across an, unexpe- an unexpected cannoli vendor in the Marquette area and wish to take some home. Thank you very much, Marcus. That is terrific advice. The code for Science & Sport products is SISCP25 and the website is scienceandsport.com. Even because my English is not so lovely, not so perfect, so it's not, it's not good for you. To yeah, it's very good. It's excellent. So. This is the second historical label. It is a pecorino. Uh, pecorino is another variety that nowadays we cultivate here. So the name of pecorino comes from the, the uh, connection with the animal sheep. And so with sheep, uh, here in Abruzzo we produce a lot of things. Well, Lionel, we had a very enjoyable rest day, didn't we? As as we heard there, um, that was us sampling some of the local local delights, the local nectar. Um, the nectar, indeed, made on the property where we stayed on the rest day, the Chavolic family's winery. Uh, uh, originally a, a Bulgarian family that moved to Italy 500 years ago and have been wa- making wine there for over a century. They make Monte Pochano da Bruzzo and they make a lovely white wine 
called Pecorino, well, the, the grape variety is Pecorino. Now, we've talked about this before on the podcast, Pecorino, because it's also, most people will know that Pecorino is a cheese. A lot of people will know it's sheep's cheese. Pecora in, in Italian is cheese. So why is it called Pecorino? Now, we've heard in the past that it's because the bunches of grapes look like the, the head of a sheep. And in fact, one of our hosts yesterday at the winery showed us a picture of the bunch of grapes to to demonstrate this and, and it absolutely it did. was absolutely it was a, uncanny the, the long sheep's face with the kind of you know the curly curly horns on the on the sheep yeah amazing however another story another version goes that the sheep on the well the gran sasso d'italia which we've talked about before the jura has been to before it is the m- mountain massif where the apennines really peak and we could see it in all of its glory from our from our lodgings uh, yesterday and over the weekend, the, the sheep up there, they used to come down um, after at the end of the summer and they would feed, they would feast on the grapes that ripened first. After um, their altitude training. Yes, they, after they their altitude down. training when their hematocrit was 78. <laughs> and they would feast on the grapes that, that ripened first and they were the pecorino grapes. And um, I'm actually drinking a glass of pecorino right now. Lovely, lovely. But it was a very restful couple of days, wasn't it? Very well, no, it wasn't. What two am I days, saying? It wasn't two days. It, it, it wasn't day. two days. Two it wasn't restful. It wasn't oh, restful. restorative. No, we were no. very busy, weren't well, we? Well, we were quite busy, weren't we? There were lots and lots of admin to, for me to catch up on. Daniel, you were off at a team hotel down on the coast uh, doing an interview for a future episode of Kilometre Zero. Um, that a really interesting listen that will be. Uh, no more spoilers on that one. And also, well, can we give one spoiler? Go on then. One teaser. It features an interview with uh, an individual who I, for many years, wanted to become, if not take his job. Well, that's tomorrow's Kilometre Zero, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, I was referring to your other oh, interview for your next Kilometre yes, Zero. Yes. I mean, you're knocking these out uh, very quickly, Daniel. Um, yeah, tomorrow's Kilometre Zero will be out in the morning. Well, then what did we do? Well, we did a long interview, Daniel. I interviewed you about oh, your God. forthcoming Jan Ulrich book, oh, and that will go out for listeners. That will go out one day if it's not lost, somehow mysteriously lost. Uh, in the, the, <laughs> the files are extremely <laughs> safe, Daniel. They are extremely <laughs> safe. Uh, they'll be on Dropbox. They will be protected by NordVPN as well, <laughs> I expect. Anyway, um, the, I found it a fascinating conversation. Uh, to hear about the idea behind the book, how you went about it, and some of the stories. I mean, I'm very familiar with Jan Ulrich's career, having covered cycling through all of those years. Um, but just hearing some of the detail, even even my chin was sort of hitting the table. That will go out at some point between the Giro d'Italia and the Tour de France, once the Giro is L- over. Last word, Lionel, on wine before Brian Nygaard gets here and has to be reined in mm. because he will want to talk about wine even more than we've spoken about it over the last 10 days. Um, the Selezione Simpatica, the selection inspired by Richard Moore and curated by Divine Sellers of London is still for sale. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com for all details of that. And today, Lionel, over the last couple of days, we've been in Abruzzo and for my money, the real blockbuster wine in that case is a Montepulciano d'Abruzzo and it's from Cantina Rapino and it's called Gira and I hope many of the listeners are enjoying that as we speak, Lionel, as we record. Tomorrow, Lionel, we're going into a different region, Emilia-Romagna. It's the home region of Bardiani, the Bardiani team. Great rivals, arch rivals of Gianni Savio and Drone Hopper as one of the other 
Italian pro continental division teams. One of the Bariani riders who has been prominent, who has featured very prominently over the last few days, in fact, finished second in Naples, is Davide Gaburro. We heard over the weekend that Davide Gaburro had had quite a difficult, complicated path to the, the world of professional cycling, so much so, in fact, that he had spent several months working in factories or a factory. Now, I spoke to Davide Gaburro this morning. Ciao Davide, buongiorno. Innanzitutto complimenti per la fuga l'altro giorno. Però ci, ci incuriosiva questa cosa che hanno, ehm, cui hanno accennato in telecronica che tu hai fatto due anni di fabbrica praticamente come operaio. No, Comunque, sei mesi. Sei mesi di... Che, insomma, eh, non vedevo il futuro nel... nel cioè, non ero riuscito a passare nel professionismo e sono dovuto insomma andare a lavorare e poi... So there we had Davide Gaburro speaking in Italian line and explaining to me exactly what this was. It wasn't a, it wasn't a sabbatical that he'd chosen or wanted, but it was, it was almost enforced because there weren't any professional teams that seemed to be interested in signing him. What it consisted of, Lionel, he worked for a company called Aya. Now we were behind an Aya lorry today on the autostrada what are you what's the what's the united kingdom equivalent of aya i know i i hope you're going to say it's the name of a well of a very famous it's the sort of the bernard matthews, bernard matthews. that was what it was what i hope you're going to say. and in fact um davide gaburro was cutting he i mean as he explained it to me he was on the the turkey slicing production line uh, he was getting up at four in the morning. He was working nights. And had he had any sort of doubts about pursuing this dream of becoming a professional cyclist, any doubts about the sacrifices it demanded and how hard it was going to be, they were sort of erased, really, by those months he spent in the factory. And he realized that, well, he had to double down on this on this lifelong dream of becoming a professional cyclist. He also worked in another factory for a while. Um, as he explained to me, he was sort of treating, I think, car seats. Um, I don't How do you treat car seats, Lionel? Are you an expert on that? No, I'm certainly <laughs> but, not, no. But he has done very well for himself since then, hasn't he? Because he has carved out a, a nice career in, well, Bariani currently. He finished second at the weekend. And I think we'll see him at the front of the race, at the pointy end of the race again. And maybe tomorrow on, as I say, a big, big day for Bardiani. This reminds me of the of Jonas Vingegaard, the Jumbo Visma rider who worked in a fish processing yes, factory, did. didn't he? Uh, before he turned professional. A similar type story, working very early in the morning and then training in the afternoon after getting home and then going back to the factory again in the morning. Um, Lionel, tomorrow's right. the food stage as well. It um, is. Talk, speaking of sliced turkey. I hope we'll do a bit better than the sliced turkey. I mean, there is the, it could be like a split stage tomorrow, like the old days of uh, the Tour de France. Did the Giro have split stages way I back in the day? Yes, they must have did. done. They must it have did. done. Uh, certainly had stages where there'd be a road stage in the morning, time trial in the afternoon. Um, our equivalent might well be Fatty Furbo at lunchtime and then the press room buffet, which have been very thin, thin on the ground this year. There was one today. There, there was one. one today. But I think that might be the second one, the first or second one. Maybe. Yes. Lionel, just a little note about the route tomorrow. So it's a very flat route and, well, it, it starts in Romagna and ends in Emilia. It ends in beautiful Reggio Emilia, which I'm really looking forward to going back to. We've been there many times before. Um, uh, at 
a hundred after 146 kilometers the race will go to a place called Campo Santo now Lionel I spoke to you about this extraordinary story that if if anyone out there is a well, an Italian speaker understands Italian. I, I heartily recommend a podcast series called Veleno, and it was the author or the, the gentleman who was behind it is called Paolo, um, Paolo Trincha. And it is about this a story um, between 1997 and 1998. There was well, what people thought and the police thought at the time was a, a satanic sect that was abusing children. And I, I know this is slightly, this is a dark diversion, Lionel, from what had been a fairly upbeat podcast until then. Um, however, I, I mean, I, we did talk about it in the car, didn't we? That it, it all began with the a, a fairly vague allegation from one child that he was being poorly treated by his parents. And then over the course of a few months, becoming a few years, um, Similar stories started to be told by children in the same area and it, and in the village, well, just adjacent to Campo Santo, that they were, they were being taken to cemeteries in the middle of the night and they were being made to kill black cats, drink their blood, and they were being they were they were being horrifically abused. And over, as I say, the period of, a period of a few months, um, sixteen children were taken away from their parents and put into care. And twenty people were eventually accused of belonging to this sect and committing these abuses. And over a period of ten or fifteen years, these charges eventually collapsed. And the Italian investigators and journalists subsequently realised that this, this, uh, the same pattern, an exact same pattern, uh, had had occurred in various places across the world. There was notably uh, an alleged sect in Texas. And to cut a very long story and a very very unsavoury story short, it appeared that the children had on the whole been brainwashed and these stories, these ideas had been somehow by a a fairly unscrupulous um, counsellor been planted in their in their minds and in their heads. Anyway, this podcast series tells the story of how um, these now adults realised what had happened to them, and I would I would heartily recommend it. As I say, this if you if you are looking for more details of this story, that the sort of sect was known as the the devils of the Bassa Modinese, the mod, the low, the southern modern region. Good grief! Yes, and the race goes through there at 150 kilometres. Sorry about that. That was a, a dark tale, oh. a dark diversion. I mean, there's no, there's no light without shade, is there, Daniel? No. But it was a beautiful day on the Giro d'Italia, as I said before, Lionel, a quintessential Giro d'Italia day, the kind of day that we dream about, we, we sort of rhapsodise about, romanticise when we think and talk about the Giro d'Italia, both from the point of view of the racing, from the point of view of the landscape. And, well... We reflected with some, with well, with great regret in the car that this was a day that our great friend and comrade Richard Moore would would have relished. And the stage was won by Biniam Gamay. Gent Vevelgen was won by Biniam Gamay. That was the last race that Richard attended. And for our Giro del Buffalo tonight, we're going to hear Richard reading a passage of Dino Buzzati's classic account of the 1949 Giro d'Italia which celebrates just that, the beauty of this race. 
Il Giro del Buffalo, Remembering Rich and Moore. In the middle of the immense tide of cars that ebbed slowly from the Monza Autodrome the day before yesterday, backlit by the setting sun's fading rays, it looked like a herd wreathed in dust that one sees in westerns. Here and there, lost in this gigantic chaos, some spots of vivid colour stood out. It was the racers, still wearing their jerseys and transfigured by the exertion. Some were perched in the team cars among the spare wheels, others leaned out of a truck's rear window, and others were still on their bicycle saddles because no one in this throng had bothered to give them a lift. And so they had 15 kilometres of extra effort to complete the Giro, adding to 4,000 kilometres already done. They saw us, they saw our dusty car, our official nameplate, our sun-baked faces. We belonged to the same gang, them and us, fragments of a small, fascinating world that was at last dispersing to re-enter the dullness of everyday life. We looked at each other with a sad, understanding smile, like soldiers returning from war who, in the hubbub of a big railway station, are immediately considered as brothers. During the Giro, we and the racers had remained virtual strangers, but now, no, now all the others were strangers and we instead were suddenly friends. We alone in that crowd could understand each other, parties to a secret full of melancholy. For 19 days we had seen them gallop throughout the entire peninsula with great astonishment, their legs the sole source of energy, and we then watched them continue in the Alps on the climbs and descents right next to precipices. One hundredth of what the last of them had done would have crushed us even 20 years ago when we were young, and we would have been taken to the hospital for at least a month. What remained now of all this frightful labour? Had it produced anything? Nothing. Pure fatigue, then, offered in sacrifice to a senseless mania. And yet, as soon as these men proceeded, passing from city to city, the people, astonishingly, abandoned their business or their spade, jumped out of bed, came down from the remotest homesteads, travelled very long distances on foot, waited in the rain and the sun for entire mornings, and there they were, the people of all Italy, farmers, labourers, old salts, mothers, decadent old men, paralytics, priests, beggars, thieves, massed along 4,000 kilometres, and they weren't what they were the day before. A new, powerful feeling possessed them. They were laughing, yelling, the sorrows of life forgotten for a few instants. They were happy, without a doubt, and we can vouch for that here. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Byrne. Yeah.